Thanks for listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. Our goal each week is to bring you amazing content and guests. Support our podcast by visiting our Patreon site at www.patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L, to pick a tier that is right for you. Or donate any amount you like. It's that easy. Help us bring you an awesome episode each week by visiting patreon.com forward slash mentors for mil today. This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, Trusted Natural Solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Mentors for Military Podcast. Our listeners have contacted us in the past about psychological operations, what it's about and everything. And you guys may or may not have listened to an episode that we did a few months back with the Go Army soft team, the soft recruiting uh, crew that was out of Fort Benning, Georgia. And I sat down with uh, two guys. One was SF, the other guy was Civil Affairs. And it was so interesting because when I got to the point of which I was going to um, ask him a question about psychological operations. Um, they both froze. They tried their best. They tap danced a little bit, which was that's fine. You know, I had them on the spot, um, but there was a long pregnant pause there. So, you know, we started getting more and more questions and people were saying, hey, listen, you know, especially psychological operations units started contacting me and saying, hey, listen, we don't get enough credit here. We want to, you know, we want to get the word out there. So I appreciate each and every one of you coming on the uh, the show today to give a little bit of background and educate some folks specifically about psychological operations. Colonel Smith, what we'll do is probably kick it off with you because I think a lot of people um, may not even know what it is. So if you were to give like a brief summary as to what psychological operations is, how would you describe it? Yeah, so psychological operations, we are the force that uh, is is really expressly focused on Influence uh, other forces out there, of course, uh, influence in the matter uh, in the matter, uh, or just as a, a matter of course, and 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 what they are are doing out in the operational space. But this is our sole focus is figuring out uh, how to influence uh, targets, if you will. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that that episode where the where the soldiers uh, tap danced and and had a difficult time uh, answering the question about about psyop because that's fairly common. As, yeah. as you well know, um, it, one of the struggles that we have, have had is describing what we do. I boil it down to this. Uh, we're the force that targets and exploits psychological vulnerability. Uh, we consider the long-term and, and short-term goals that commanders and, uh, and frankly, the U.S. have. Uh, we think about if we can get these people, to, uh, the different audiences, to do or not do certain things, uh, then... Uh, th then it would be beneficial toward those goals. And then we research those targets and, and figure out what, uh, what biases and heuristics and, and social pressures exist that will help us uh, exploit the psychological vulnerabilities to gain those behaviors. Now, I know that uh, a lot of people struggle in, in describing it that way because it sounds uh, maybe a bit nefarious. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty unapologetic for that. Uh, so I think, honestly, <laughs> yeah. a lot of our young soldiers um, will tap dance around that because they're nervous about, uh, about describing it that way. Yeah. Uh, that might be the benefit of me being in the, in the studio today is, uh, is, is, again, I'm pretty unapologetic about describing it that way. It is what it is. 
Yeah. No, I think that's very helpful because a lot of people ask what it is and the name sort of implies that, but yet you don't really hear people describe it in that way. So I think it's very helpful. And especially in today's world where there are so many things that are going on. Now, of course, psychological operations have been around for a very long time, but the fact that all of these different fronts are coming at us, um, you know, from all kinds of different directions and the fact that they're using psychological operations in various different ways. It's very important that people understand what's going on in that space with social media and everything, uh, especially right. out there. Yeah. And, you know, so the uh, again, uh, uh, one of the struggles that you'll get when you ask uh, is if you ask five different PSYOP soldiers uh, to talk about PSYOP, you may very well get five different, this is what I did last time I deployed answers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so those can be super, super specific, uh, which is again, the reason I fall back to more of that bumper sticker, uh, description, if you will, because the reality is it's all manner of, of influence, right? Uh, it, it, the mission might call for, uh, what is known as MISO or military information support operations. We can debate that name, uh, if you'd like, uh, <laughs> It might call for uh, leveraging some sort of deception, and uh, and it might call for any number of information-related capabilities that we would employ. It might call for uh, influence. might might require something that is non-kinetic, and uh, and in other cases, it might actually require something that is incredibly kinetic. Uh, that we want to uh, we want a different audience to actually witness. So let's go into the pipeline, because I know that, you know, coming in off of the streets versus maybe even um, an inner transfer. So somebody who's currently on active duty that wants to go into 37 Foxtrot. But let's start with the enlisted side, since I mentioned that. Take me down the pipeline of what it's like to go into psychological operations. What's kind of the training that goes into that? So I would use um, my experience um, to kind of give you a better idea. Um, like yourself, I used to be armor. I was a Cav Scout. Yay. So um, I did that for a few years. I did recruiting also. And then um, after my last tour in Afghanistan, I went through um, psychological operations assessment. And upon graduating, if you don't have airborne, you're going to have to complete airborne at Fort Benning. Upon graduation of airborne, uh, you'll get your date, your school date. You'll report to Fort Bragg and you'll start a two week process of introduction into special operations. And um, after that, you'll start your about six months of language training. After that six months of language training, you'll go into your MOS phase. You'll complete your psychological operations um, MOS phase, and then you'll go to, you might go to a cultural studies and a regional studies. Um, the schoolhouse for the psychological operations phase is going to be broken into a beginning portion that's going to be more like your school book portions where you'll learn the psychological operations process. That's how we target foreign audiences for influence. Um, upon graduating from that, you'll begin to understand the dissemination process as far as face-to-face -face engagements, as far as um, product dissemination to engender that um, behavioral change. Once you graduate from that uh, process, you'll move on to usually what we'll have um, an MOS phase, and I believe we've added in the new uh, school portion, the, the integration between uh, SIOP and the other. Um, it's building, it's, it's, it's building. building rapidly right now. It's a definitely right. a priority. Yeah. So what we, we usually will end um, the MOS phase with what's called Black Knight. Uh, that's when our soldiers will, uh, they'll go on, I wanna say a two week FTX. They'll be given uh, a unconventional warfare, uh, they'll be sent to an unconventional warfare type of environment. Um, they'll be giving, uh, given objectives to complete, and their task is to use um, everything that they've known, their dissemination platforms, in order to engender usually the, um, the host national forces or the uh, local um, people to engender um, behavior change to kind of achieve that goal. And they'll be great on that. Sort of like um, Robin Sage that, with the SF thing. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. All right. And so um, upon, uh, after that, usually we'll have what's called like an embassy phase. And basically that will teach the, um, they'll teach our soldiers how to um, conduct their operations while utilizing interagency skills. Okay. Um, and then after they graduate that, they'll do their cultural studies um, where they'll be, they'll kind of tune us in a little bit more as far as understanding what 
um, the values and kind of living conditions of other cultures. So we can um, it'll allow us to help study other cultures in order to give uh, a greater understanding when we're conducting our mission analysis. So did, when you said selection, so uh, what does this selection consist of? Because I think a lot of people are maybe not familiar with that portion of it. Yeah, so uh, f- first, uh, uh, be aware that, that there's only so much that we can, that we can describe it. Uh, there, there's only so much detail that we should devolve uh, here because it is, after all, a selection. Sure. Uh, it's 10 days, uh, I, I can tell you that. Uh, there are physical and and tactical and and team elements to it as well as uh, uh, academic uh, elements. It, it is very physically and uh, I would say probably emotionally and mentally taxing. So I mean that makes sense because it is part of a whole selection uh, to try to pick out the best individuals that's going to be able to go on through the training. Right. That's the whole intent. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And, and just, just as SF does, there are attributes, some of them overlapping. Uh, there are attributes for which we're actually uh, searching with the candidates. And uh, after, after those 10 days and, and many, many measurements, uh, we think we've got a pretty good picture of, uh, of who has and who does not have those attributes. Yeah. Well, I mean, so psychological operations, that's, you know, when we talk about special operations, you guys are going to be right there with the cutting edge and with, you know, units, whether it be um, SF, CA, um, you know, civil affairs or um, maybe even Rangers, uh, all kinds of and conventional, I'm sure. But, you know, the fact that you guys are embedded and with them, you know, right beside them, the selection is very critical, I would imagine, too, into weeding out those individuals that you feel like are going to go through the pipeline and also be able to work with special operations types of uh, capacity. Right. I, I mean, ultimately, just as with the other selection programs, what we're looking for is whether the person is trainable. Uh, for for what we need them to do. Yeah. Uh, so it's not whether they're capable of everything that we will eventually ask them to do necessarily. Yeah. But more uh, how tr- their their level of train their degree of trainability for what for what we intend to teach them. And so once you start going get into the regional studies, um, for whatever region you're going to go to, uh, we'll kind of do another analysis of that actual region. So once that per- once that person gets to whether it's civil affairs, SF, or SIOP, when they get to their actual um, their command-oriented unit, they already have um, a greater understanding of that region, um, its conflicts, and the people who live there. So, Captain Milligan, what was your route then? Because it would be very different, I would think, at least from the officer's standpoint. It, it absolutely was. I was a second lieutenant, and I went to what I thought was a cultural support team brief. Surprise, it was a PSYOP. <laughs> Maybe that was the first time that I experienced what PSYOP was, um, but I was hooked. I So I knew as a second lieutenant that I had that goal once my eligibility window opened. And so if for officers, um, there there is a window after your platoon leader time and in that weird time of um, right before you pin captain to your first year of captain, that's when you can apply. And it's there's a lot of paperwork, uh, but for a definitely good cause because as Colonel Smith said, their um, assessment starts from the get-go on your ability to write, your ability to communicate, your background, uh, and, and your ability to be trained and molded into a PSYOP operator. And, and the actual selection process, like, uh, like Colonel Smith said and like uh, Sergeant Smith was talking about, it, I definitely had to train up to it. I'm not going to pretend like I was, you know, this just tremendous stud that walked in and aced it. But it was, it was amazing in hindsight. During the time it was. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was not so amazing, but yeah. everything is for an absolute purpose. And, and I think the, the people that have developed the assessment and selection criteria and curriculum have really done their homework. And not only do, does this regiment want mentally capable candidates, but you have to be physically resilient. And, and that's definitely put to the test during selection. And it, I, I think it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. And, and so then uh, again, after, uh, I was accepted, I started the pipeline very similar to what Sergeant Smith just laid out. I, I knew I wanted the CENTCOM AOR. And so then that's where, that's where I got a line. 
So when you guys arrive at your unit, um, I mean, kind of run me through a day in the life of what what is it really like in psychological operations? Because I mean, you receive all this different training, as I understood it, both in language um, and in understanding different ways in which communication comes through. I'm assuming that means also social media, um, you know, and, and other types of things that today resonate a lot with younger people. So what's kind of the day in the life of? Can I start? Uh, one thing that I, I'd like to start with before before folks actually begin to talk about uh, a day in the life from their perspective is just I want to generate this understanding that uh, we're extremely high op tempo. We're a very very small uh, organization. Uh, I think I believe the smallest branch uh, in the army still, um, and we're in constant that we're constantly in all phases of a readiness model. Mm -hmm. We have people that are doing individual training, so schools and other individual skills tasks, uh, and, and, and what people would think of in terms of reset, while simultaneously in each one of our formations having other people who, are, who have moved on to collective phase training, while simultaneously <laughs> other people in that same organization who are deployed or are supporting from here deployed forces. It's an extremely high uh, op tempo, and I, and I just want to open with that as we talk about uh, a day in the life, because the reality is if you're here, uh, a day in your life could be any one of those three, and, and, that, and it's, it, that's independent of whether uh, the brigade or the BCT, if you will, is, is, uh, is somewhere, because we're in all three of those phases all the time. Do you guys want to take it in any other different perspective? Because that was really good, but I didn't yeah, know. Um, <laughs> I, he, he definitely covered it. And um, I guess for, so our phases began, um, we'll have uh, green, yellow, and red phase. And so as we get to red phase, it's our deployment phase. Um, so if you can imagine uh, you just come out of the schoolhouse and now you're on a team um, or within the detachment. Our detachments are kind of small, so they can be anywhere between six to 12 people. Um, you may be lucky if you can have three teams. A lot of times you just might have two or sometimes one team in a, in a detachment. Um, as soon as you arrive to green phase, what we try to do with our newer soldiers um, is we try to increase their soldier um, proficiency. And these are things like their survival uh, proficiency. So we send them to uh, Sears C. Um, we send them to weapons courses um, that will utilize anything between your um, rifle weapons to um, close to hand, um, your more um, personal weapons like our Glocks or our M9s. Um, from there, we send them to any other kind of individual school that's good for the soldier, because once they enter yellow phase, things are gonna start to speed up. We start to have them focus a little bit more on their regional training, and something we start to give a little bit more training towards the tasks that they're gonna be doing. So if they're gonna be doing a lot more um, analyst type deals, or if they're gonna be analyzing the environment, if they're gonna be, whatever they're gonna be doing, we're gonna to start to focus that training towards those deployment tasks. Because once we get to red phase, we're gonna start testing those tasks, almost just like any other um, army unit, except for it does go fast, because when you're not in school, then you're doing some type of other task, right? Because um, we don't have a lot of people. So if you're not gonna be in school, then you have to be doing something towards your uh, deployment task, yeah. Roger. Yeah. And so once you enter red phase, um, we start we start cutting off kind of those um, the individual training, and we focus a little bit a lot more on collective tasks and validation. And then you're you're ready to deploy. So you may go right back into a pipeline by which you have to re-gear yourself back up for a very different environment if you're going to be ne next deploying to a very different geographical region or in support of. Is that Roger. fair to say? Yeah, okay. So normally when you enter a yellow phase, your your detachment or even your team is going to go into some type of mission analysis where they'll start to um, understand their operational environment, um, their information environment, and the cognitive environment. And so you're trying to give yourself as much of a, a holistic view on your target environment as possible. As you're doing that, you have to send soldiers to weapons training. You have to send soldiers to... And so that's what I mean where you are constantly um, working and you're, you're, you are constantly doing a task. Yeah. He, I'd like to clarify one thing. So, uh, so absolutely mission by mission, uh, we do some very extensive research and study 
on the region, the populations, down to a down to a pretty granular level in some cases. However, we are just like the SF groups are regionally aligned. We're regionally aligned, but it, for us, it happens at the battalion level. So, uh, so when we when we bring soldiers on board, they have a regional specializ specialization, and most often they will work in inside that region. Of course, we're like everyone else, where when there's a when there's a preponderance of the force in an AOR, CENTCOM, uh, for now, um, then then people will work out of the region. But the ideal is really that that folks will work most of their career in their region. The other exception to that would be you get to a point uh, in, in frankly rank where where you're you you're no longer serving at the battalion level, which by definition would take you out of your region as well. I'm, I'm clearly at that point right now. My background is PACOM. I've spent a lot of time working in, in the Indo-PACOM AOR, but with everything going on in CENTCOM, I also have done uh, a handful of deployments uh, to CENTCOM. That's so helpful because, you know, a lot of people are very familiar with special forces. And so I'm glad you mentioned that, that are very much regional. You know, you have third uh, that primarily is in Africa. You got seventh that's in South America. Right. And so by, you know, 10th, that's typically over in Europe. So it's, it's kind of helps people understand too, that if you're going to be going through a, a training pipeline that takes you to a specific language, more than likely you're going to be assigned to a unit, to your point, that's going to be um, utilizing that language uh, under, you know, the, the types of training that you received and stuff, and that you're going to be in support of that region. Yes, yes, absolutely. Which is tremendously helpful, obviously, uh, because it, it supports uh, the language training, uh, should be language that's relevant to the region that you're talking about. It gives you a base of knowledge when you do start doing your mission analysis and the target audience analysis of, of the targets that you'll, uh, that you'll inevitably encounter uh, and, and be trying to persuade one way or another. So, so that's the reasoning for that. So when you're in a detachment, what, what's the size? You said they're relatively small. We're going through a bit of a change right now. And and so uh, so Sergeant Smith's uh, mention of the of the five to twelve I, I think is what what we're transitioning to is something that looks a lot like uh, that SF model. Mm. So our detachments going forward, beginning this year, will be 12, uh, 12 people uh, right. across the board. Gotcha. Okay. Now, who is it that you're typically supporting? So, like you know, especially in a deployment type of situation. So um, they depend on um, where the um, the side professional is. So I'll start with if you're if we're supporting from a detachment, um, sometimes we can support a special operations task force forward. Um, these can require either the the side to become a planner within that task force, or um, they might break him down and send him with either supporting any other special operations team members forward. Um, we might actually send the PSYOP team for specifically to AOBs, to um, uh, advanced operating bases that uh, are either set up by SEAL members or SUP teams. A lot of our PSYOPers are located within Special Forces groups. And so, for instance, uh, in a little bit here, I'll be moving to 5th group to their 4th battalion, uh, where there are also five other PSYOPers who are different within their um, other battalions supporting those specific battalions. So they'll they'll be regionally focused, but just like Colonel Smith said, a lot of a lot of CENTCOM pulls in, um, pulls in pulls in special operations groups from who would let otherwise be focused on other regions. So from different echelons, our members can be supporting anywhere from directly supporting special forces and ranger teams. Um, to higher echelons supporting um, advanced operating bases, um, to supporting um, special operations task forces, joint operations task forces at the headquarters level. And one thing that I'll tag on to that um, is in, in one day, I think I changed from an embassy outfit to <laughs> my uniform to my roughs um, and back again a couple times. So just like Sergeant Smith said, it's we, we have such this versatility on, on how we were utilized because we're so demanded and our capabilities. And so, I mean, Department of Defense, obviously, but Department of State, NGOs, 
Um, we worked out of the embassy and then turned right around and worked with, you know, host nation partner forces. And then that evening we were planning with special forces, planning with civil affairs on different kind of combined uh, operations and efforts. And, and with that, we had, you know, you have a lot of bosses and everyone's priority is, is tried to shove down onto your priority. Um, so it, it definitely takes uh, a type of person that can receive all those and then filter what the, the overarching objectives are and, and how to get after them. But, but just like Sergeant Smith said, we're, we can be everywhere just because there's, there's always um, an opportunity that can be leveraged to, to utilize psychological operations. And if I, if I can chime in real quick, one thing, I reclassed in uh, 1999, and they did not have this process uh, and assessment phase. So it was kind of hit or, hit or miss when it came to some of the individuals you would get in the field. And, and she's not exaggerating. I have literally had, and I remember one time in Iraq, where we drove down Route Irish with suits in a bag. So you were tactical one minute, driving down the highway, you know, dodging IEDs, and then you'd have to put a suit on, go talk to the chief of mission or who else, whoever else, get changed again, get back on the road, go back to wherever you went, and then you'd have to engage with either an ODA commander or whomever else. <clears throat> so you you have to be able to switch your, your brain. All right, and now I'm talking to a State Department guy. This is what he's looking for. So your target audience isn't necessarily always the... Your target, it's the people you serve too, because you have to get your point across as, as eloquently as you can, and then you know speak in there, use all their verbs that they like to use in their meetings, but also get your mission done, which is obviously the priority, is you have a mission to do. So it's uh, the vetting that they're doing now and the assessment and selection is just it's awesome to see. Uh, I didn't personally go through it. Who knows if I would have made it. But uh, it's great to see. It's great to see. There's so many young people today that are, it seems like at least, that they want to be a part of the Cool Kids Club. So what you're basically saying is you're part of the Cool Kids Club, right? Um, <laughs> part I mean, of every club. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, because a lot of people don't know that psychological operations is doing what you're describing here and working alongside and being very much integrated into that soft community that a lot of these kids think of only as rangers or you know marine force recon or you know sf or seals you know th there are other mos's that are out there this being one of them in career fields by which you know you're in special operations truly as you guys just described it yeah i so on this end of the phone call there are two people that are probably in the cool kids club and two that are not i'll let I'll let the <laughs> listeners decide. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but this, is, this is spot on. Right now, uh, the group has a few hundred people deployed in many places all over the globe. And, in, and if you ask for those experiences uh, of, of, all the, of all the folks who are deployed right now, you would get some very, very similar stories, many very similar stories of people needing to be uh, working with, with, uh, with partners uh, in one moment, being in the embassy in, an, in another moment, very, very interagency uh, flavored as well, and then possibly working with some uh, special mission unit the following week. That, that's, that's quite common. Yeah. Again, not talked about. Honestly, most of what we're describing right here is never really talked about a whole lot. And, and I, I want to kind of go down that path. Why do you think that is? Why do you think psychological operations has kind of been one of those hidden? I mean, people knew it existed, but why do you think it's been one of those hidden MOSs? So this is bad again. So I think it's because one, it, it's, it's a couple of things. One is basically the, the people don't know what we do. And we talked about that earlier. Uh, I've been deployed where you've shown up, and I've heard this several times, and, you know, a, a G3 or, or a planner guy said, I read a book on the plane over here, so I have all these ideas. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, and so <clears throat> it's really hard for people to grasp because when you're su supporting a conventional unit, not to take away what they do, but they're doing the whack-a-mole. Uh, you know, somebody pops their head up, they hit it. Well, we're trying to convince that head not to come up. 
So we, we're, our fight is beyond the range of their weapon. So we're trying to keep these guys from even showing up. And so we're playing, I hate to use that analogy, but we're playing chess when other people are playing checkers. Uh, and a lot of times it's not a, a sexy, quote unquote, air quote, job. It's a lot of study. I mean, this is a, an academic field. You need to know your people. You need to have your target, you know what they're thinking, and then try to develop these lines of persuasion that helps you convince them to either stop what they're doing or change their direction. And then when you look at yourself, when was the last time we ever changed opinion about anything? You really can't point at yourself and say, well, I, on this day I changed my opinion on X. So it's a very hard thing to articulate to yourself, try doing it to other people. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there's that whole, ooh, you're psyop, and you always go, ooh, that's, we've seen that, I'm sure, a bunch of times. Yeah, yeah, a lot. That doesn't start the conversation <laughs> off right, because already they're like, you know, when you start talking, like Colonel Smith did, in, in our terminology, sometimes, you know, I hate to use this, but I was an infantry guy once, so I can do it. You know, the knuckle draggers, <laughs> they don't get it. And if they don't get it, yeah. they don't want to listen to you. And if they don't listen to you, you don't get, you know, included in their planning, in which case you can't execute your mission, and you get relegated to the back seat somewhere, and then you spend all your time trying to, trying to do your job. Uh, so, I, I, you know, it's hard to say. It's all individual based. You know, certain units, uh, you have some really intelligent planners. They've been to the SAMS, SAMS course. They're Jedi Knights. They kind of get it and you can get in. Uh, and other times they just don't want to listen to it because it's just too much. You know, they have so much on their plate. Uh, for the, the 365 days they're on the ground, they don't necessarily have the time it takes to look at the problem at another facet of the problem and think, all right, we need to do this security problem over here, but you know, we got to develop this country. We have to convince the people that the host nation or whoever we're supporting is good. So it's a multifaceted thing. And a lot of times, sometimes they just, they, it's not that they don't want a lesson, they don't have the time. Yeah. And you know, I, I think that this is something that's actually changing quite a lot. I mean, I, I've, I've, been in SIAP since uh, 2004, and I think there's been a lot of change and a lot of emphasis put on what we do. And the senior leaders are starting, uh, starting to get it more and more, um, and and understand what we do. I think the other the other part of the problem, and this is something that I I think we've been we on the SIAP side have been slow to change, is we've as we opened with not always been good at talking about and describing. Uh, what we do, and, and and it's trying to strike that balance between mm -hmm. being able to share something with somebody that it, that that's is relevant and interesting, without crossing some line because it's a sensitive activity or or something that's touchy to discuss, uh, mm -hmm. and and we've not been very we've not been very good at that either. So, but I think both of those elements are changing. Well, you know how it is. I mean, it's always difficult for uh, when a child comes up to you and asks you, what do you do, dad or mom? Uh, yeah. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Hey, you know, how, how are you going to describe what you do in yeah. a paragraph and in a way which they'll understand it? And, and quite frankly, this isn't easy to describe, which is which is the reason if you ask uh, historically, if you've asked 25 psyopers what they do, you get what they what 25 psyopers did exactly on their last mission, right. as opposed to broadly, what does PSYOP do? It's also the reason that when I run into, I, I live out in a largely non-military community and I'm talking to a neighbor and they ask me what I do and I tell them I'm a PSYOP mm -hmm. officer and their image is immediately, I know by the look on their face or the question that follows, that they have this vision that I'm, that I'm uh, meeting with people and lying down on a couch in front of me and I'm helping them. And I, no, 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 no. Psychological, I'm right. right. Far, far more likely that I'm going to break somebody than, than to fix them, you know. Right, but, right. If I could, sir, like it, um, another uh, thing I, I think it's um, this job has changed so much even since I joined in uh, 2015. It seems like a lifetime ago that in 2017 um, I was part of the counter ISIS mission. That seems like something as far as influencing against extremist organizations was it's like us now. Um, now we're not talking about getting people to come off the battlefield or we're talking about information warfare. and. The uh, PSYOP soldier has had to adapt from 
what is influ uh, influence operation to information operation to, if you're not talking about information warfare, you're not talking about anything effective at all. Um, but now you have to understand information warfare. Um, and now we're talking about information warfare that's not counter Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Now we're talking about countering counterpart nations. We're talking about countering your Russian, Iran, China um, influence. And so that Saab soldier has had to adapt from even regional to thinking trans-regional to, you know, now if I'm looking at different, um, if I'm looking at one nation, I have to look at that nation throughout the scope of the world. And so when you walk up to that soldier and you're like, what do you guys do? It's, if you would have asked me back in 2017 and then you ask me now, the two answers are completely different. Well, you know, technology is advancing. I think they had said the time frame it took for us to roll a rock all the way to put a man on the moon. You think about that time frame now from that time to now of computers. It's like um, we're we're growing at leaps and bounds almost every day. You know, what typically would take us 20, 30 years is taking us now months or a year in order to accomplish. Look how quickly it took you know, for us to put um, this latest crew up in the space station, you know, from the time of inception and actually uh, doing something like that. It's unbelievable. So when you think about what you guys are doing on a daily basis and how much that is evolving and changing, and like you said, the influences come uh, that come into that, I mean, you guys are making a really good case for the type of job that you do and how cool it is and with the things that are going on in the daily world around us. Well, I, I would even say um, if there's one thing I would want anybody considering entering the psychological operations field is they need to understand that they are the front of the of the fight of the 21st century. The battle between information warfare is the fight. It's how we're going to protect our homeland. If Even if you look at um, what the Homeland Security Agencies are saying, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, um, DOD, we are all in agreement that um, the information warfare fight it, it is going to be uh, the number one fight. It's our, it's one of our largest threats uh, to the homeland. Um, just look at when the European Union had to ban memes. We laughed at that, but uh, the threat of adversarial dissemination into their informational environment was so much that they had to ban memes on their social media platforms. TikTok, look, they're already talking Roger. about TikTok. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, Wait, um, what's TikTok? Yeah. <laughs> I'm 50. I got I to not circling you know, what that is. But there's so many people out there that have, you know, want to have the latest technology or want to have the, the latest stuff, uh, you know, and apps and everything else. And so many times we actually accept those things without even reading the fine print. And we put them on our um, computers. We put them on our, our phones, whatever the case may be. And this is where you guys are coming into play and really understanding everything that's going on out there and understanding, having to keep up with the technology um, and the changes that are happening, not only within the various cultures around the world and studying the behaviors and stuff. But I think you're also talking about the technology changes as well. You're having to keep up with a lot of fronts here, as well as being deployed and supporting an individual mission. Yeah. I, so in addition to the challenge that Sergeant Smith uh, was talking about with, he came in and he was thinking as a cyber counterviolent extremist, uh, which we're still thinking. I mean, we, we, we've not stopped that mission set. Now we're talking about competing with uh, other great powers and, and, and adversaries and, and threats uh, a lot more than, than we were a handful of years ago. Uh, in addition to that, we're training to be able to conduct PSYOP, do influence uh, during conflict. But as you mentioned, the technology is, is an aspect where we're uh, focused on thinking about um, the emerging technologies at all times. So we've got the traditional uh, radio and, and TV that people think about, but, but all the way up to uh, TikTok and social media and, and other emerging platforms. Um, when I go out and I visit uh, training events, uh, I, I, I try to, uh, uh, I'm very happy when, when people don't get too, too focused on the, on the delivery methods, uh, but, but, they're, but are aware of them. Because at the core, 
influence and doing the target audience analysis and thinking thinking through uh, the, the the bases of uh, military information support operations and deception. The core of influence remains the same, but we do have to be, and this speaks to, to the challenge that you're mentioning, our soldiers have to be able to do high-tech, uh, low-tech, and no-tech, no-tech influence. And that last one, believe it or not, uh, when, you, when you hear that list, the, the, the first one, the high-tech, might sound like a challenge. The, the, the no-tech, the, the, that last one, to me, is the more uh, challenging one, and often the more challenging one to impress on our soldiers. And so back in the day, I guess it was like World War II, uh, psychological operations consisted of a lot of dropping leaflets uh, yeah. and stuff like that. So when you yep. think of like the no-tech, you know, I mean, it can go down to the bare minimum type of stuff of trying to figure out a way to communicate and it, get your message across. It yeah. goes right down to there is no means of communication other than person to person. And and we're developing a uh, I'll say it this way. We're we're engaging with some sort of a network that that has an, it has its own influence platform. And, mm -hmm. and to me, that's that no tech uh, aspect. And, you know, sometimes we can get uh, enamored with uh, with the high tech. Uh, pieces and then find ourselves in a place where, frankly, that doesn't exist, or at least, it, or at least we don't have it. Uh, so we rely on a partner or or a network that has an ability to influence and get done what we want done. And our soldiers, um, I'll tell you, uh, we're um, we're definitely selecting the right people because our soldiers have a grasp of all those mission sets that Sergeant uh, uh, Smith was talking about, and they also get the uh, the high tech low tech and no tech concepts sometimes sometimes i have to remind but uh, but but they're very very capable so when you know when i started out my very first deployment in siap was kosovo we actually started in albania and then we went into kosovo and we had nothing we had a loudspeaker truck and three guys and and we didn't have a anything so everything we did was face to face so you would engage people, uh, f find out who that key communicator was in that area, and you'd find them and search them out, and you would talk to them and see what their issues were, and you're taking notes, and, and there was literally nothing. There was You couldn't give them anything. We had no paper, no radio, no anything. And uh, now, you know, I remember I, re I retired in 2016, and I remember some of the last briefs I went to, and I was hearing about what was going on across the groups and uh, my mouth, I kept having to lift my mouth up because I was just like, wow. I said, this, this is, we've come a long way, baby. And, uh, and, and these kids, and like the colonel was saying, you have to be able to go face to face and play the used car salesman. But you also have to be able to dig into the tech side of it and know how these te the tech works and how you can use it to your advantage. That that kind of takes me to back to the uh, no tech because I think is is that a challenge you guys are maybe seeing within the training pipeline too that a lot of uh, the younger generation are not usually you know they don't communicate a lot face to face they don't pick up a phone even they text it may be more challenging for them to have those communication skills I th I think the I think the selection process uh, the assessment and selection course looks for those abilities in its candidates to bridge that gap and to be able to communicate. Because whether you're sending something over the internet or you know a radio or face-to-face -face or whatever it may be, it's your ability to strategically communicate an intended message and get to an intended outcome. And and if, if you're the total package, which the assessment selection pipeline is really looking for, you that bridging that gap isn't as difficult. Uh, I would say that the the pipeline and you know the assessors really look for the creativity. They look for those people that can take initiative and not stop at no, but continue to find out how to get to yes. Um, and I, you know, being in the social media generation, I haven't found my sometimes inability to use social me media um, ever as a hindrance because there's always a way around. I mean, we're in an age where we're constantly surrounded by narratives coming from every direction, everywhere we go, everywhere we look, it's that just means that there's that many opportunities to get the right one across. Um, and so I'd, I'd say that I'd say that that hasn't proved as much as a hindrance as you would think. Um, 
Yeah, I think yeah. the extent to which it, it, it ever is, it's really uh, the, the leadership has done that to our soldiers. Because Captain Milligan's right. Our assessment selection actually looks for what uh, we're talking about. Yes, people are uh, bo- pe- people coming into the force now are uh, digital natives, if you will, uh, and, and, and grew up in that uh, era. But we're selecting the right people. I think the leadership, I sometimes, I have to guard against... Uh, overemphasizing the emerging technologies and the and the shiny new thing, to the point that uh, that during a training event or frankly an, an actual operation, uh, the soldiers are focused on the thing that I've overemphasized, uh, and instead they just go back to the basics. They've done their research, they've done their analysis, they've thought about it, and. Uh, the solution isn't necessarily some high tech piece of gear, but it's going and talking to this person who has uh, who has an audience. I want to take it now into a little bit of a different direction, and that is in terms of a career path. What, what do you guys um, see as far as your career growth potential within PSYOPs? My sense is that they're basically in track with the Army, although that does change as things expand and contract. In my prior MOS, uh, as an MP, I feel like making the transition and beginning my career in SAW and in PSYOP, I see how close-minded I was back then. I saw my, I saw my tunnel, my tunnel vision was that. It, and now coming into SAW, it's your, your vision has this holistic view of operations, strategic to tactical level, and that I think that has a huge impact on the officers and the NCOs on how their career progresses. Yeah. Opportunities are, I mean, the sky's the limit of opportunities and different positions you can take. There's command and there's staff and there's operational. And it, it cycles throughout every rank that I've seen. I mean, uh, you know, in a lot of other, as per- careers progress in a lot of some of the conventional forces and conventional MOSs, you you see a start to see a stagnation maybe you see maybe around that staff time and then you see right. this plateau and and then that's that's kind of your desk life but i've seen senior ncos and senior officers still in the fight constantly still operationalized in their day-to-day jobs and i think that um i think that's if that's not an incentive to come to this career path i don't know what is yeah, I think I, I totally agree. That that to me is really uh, a, a significant point. I know I can't, and I don't know if this phrase is used anymore, uh, but when I came into SIOP, one of the things that I was really excited about was the concept of more troop time, what we, what we constantly referred to as troop time. The opportunity to command as a captain, command as a major, possibly command as a, as a lieutenant colonel and command a, a, as a colonel, and frankly, operate. At, at each one of those ranks as well. And I know I'm being an officer-centric right now, but it, it happens to be my PSYOP experience. Uh, but to operate, command at each one of those ranks and operate at each one of those ranks, as well as, yes, uh, do some staff time. But uh, that was really exciting to me. Yeah, no, that sums it up very well because I think some people may wonder, okay, um, will I get those opportunities in psychological operations? Again, if they're not very familiar with it, you just explain that, oh yeah, you're definitely going to get that, and oh, the yeah. op tempo is high, yeah, yeah. and you're going to be, you know, going through training all the time and deployments. I mean, so I think you're trying to paint a picture of, you know, what type of individual that you are seeking within psychological operations for sure. Uh, and, and people need to understand when they, you know, sign up for that or they come into that, what they're signing up for. Yeah. And it's been very well described. I understand Sergeant Smith and Captain Milligan both just recently deployed. So maybe you guys can give us a little idea of your own experience there. So um, my to come off, um, my language is uh, Persian Farsi, which is Iranian. And so um the, my, I actually go back to my first uh, deployment was supporting um, Special Operations Task Force Operation Inherent Revol- Resolve in Baghdad, Iraq. And so for that, I worked for a two-star general, and I also supported the ambassadors within the uh, Department of State. <laughs> Between that, I also uh, worked with um, generals and members of the uh, Iraqi government's executive staff. So when Captain Milligan says, you are going to have many bosses, you will. And so you're going to have to leverage all of their strategic goals, not operational, but their strategic goals 
against each other in order to fulfill your own operational goals. And so I did that for about six months. And then I came back to Fort Bragg. I retrained to set up for my next uh, deployment, um, CINCOM. There we supported a wide range. You started looking at more like a, a larger operational area. So we were supporting areas in the northern part of uh, Southwest Asia. We were supporting areas down in the southern parts of Southwest Asia to include also the areas of Egypt. And so like that gave me a much broader, uh, when uh, once again, <laughs> when Captain Milligan says, you're, you're just not a scout like in a town or whatever, and you're supporting Talifar and that's it. And for 12 months, that's what you're gonna do. Like when you are a sniper, you are looking regional, many times global. And by the time you leave, you have a complete understanding of almost the problems of facing every state. And so as I got back, then kind of the COVID thing happened, which allowed me actually to take a break. And um, then I'll move to Fort Campbell and go back to our support fifth group um, in the Sincom region. So even on staff, I mean, you're going hard. <laughs> like it's when I, when I say when um, the people who are gonna come over to this MOS, they have to understand that it's it is a marathon and so um take your breaks when you can but understand that you are going to work hard it's it's a fun marathon i would say <laughs> yeah. Smith and I, we've actually talked about this before that uh he and i are the same mindset we're we never stop reading about our aor ever we never stop receiving news and and because we never stop being interested or caring about that mission and i think that's a quality that you know, somebody coming into PSYOP or SOF in general really needs. You have to be invested. Um, and and like he said, the train up to deployment is so mission analysis heavy because you hit the ground running. If you don't understand the mission, if you don't understand the region that you're in and operating in and the people uh, down to the nitty gritty slang level, it, you're, you're not going to be as effective. And during my last deployment, it, it was CENTCOM AOR aligned, um, and I was the detachment commander, and I had guys in four different countries. And not only that, I was working with people in probably eight different countries during this. But, you know, so you have to have that micro and macro view of what's going on. You have to understand the region in order to address right in, what, what's right in front of you. And my day to day, it was like he said, it's a marathon. I, I was never, it was never downtime, um, but it's enjoyable because you're seeing actual tangible results of your efforts. And and so my day to day was, you know, sometimes I'd be in the embassy or sometimes I'd be sitting there drinking chai with with these people that are, they're incredible, incredible partners that. Um, Man, I'd, I'd go back right now if I could. They're just the, the partner forces that you get to work with. I, in my personal opinion, that's what is one of the most incredible parts of this job um, because they're just they're phenomenal people. And and to be able to accomplish objectives together, uh, you know, I, I don't know where else you'd be able to find that and see that outside of this MOS or outside of the soft community as much. Um, so yeah, my, my deployment was, it was incredible. We, we had a lot of great successes, worked with a lot of phenomenal people. Um, I don't think I slept for six months, but, uh, and then I came back and started the cycle again, started training my guys again and, and never, and never turned off that, you know, that mindset that you're, you're always operational. And I think that's one of the really unique things about PSYOP is that you're never out of the fight. Uh, even back from Bragg, um, so yeah, it's been it's been great. One of the funniest things was Captain Milligan was on the ground for maybe forty eight hours from Qatar. I was like, "What are you doing? What's your op design? What's your?" I was hitting her up like immediately as soon as she yeah. like. I don't even think she was unpacked, um, and yeah. so that's just how rapid uh, this whole thing works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What are the transition opportunities then? So let's say you leave active service. You mentioned so many different um, individuals or departments and agencies that you support while on active duty. How does that then relate to your transition and benefit you? Well, as being somebody who transitioned, I can tell you that <laughs> it, it opens a lot of doors. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of doors. 
In fact, uh, sometimes you let's say you go to an embassy somewhere, you have to, you know, make sure your guys ain't spending a lot of their time on the other side of the office getting business cards and and you know focus on the job. That stuff will come uh, because they see the they see us and how well trained that our guys are, and and they want what we have. And so sometimes you know retention <laughs> can be an issue. But at the end of the day, when you leave and you have all these experiences and you're multifaceted, uh, there'll be opportunities for sure uh, once you get out. Yeah, uh, I, I can you, definitely hear that. You mean you mean I can't just keep doing this? I... <laughs> <laughs> no, they kick sure. out. They do. <laughs> yeah, well, they... No one, no one told me that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So certainly there are the agencies that you're talking about, and and uh, the the intergovernment uh, jobs that you that you can do. Uh, some of the stuff that uh, the SAR majors talking about, but uh, also things in the private sector. I mean, you can imagine that our, our folks to leave service and they do everything from uh, from teach to work to working in, in in private industry. You know, having this type of knowledge, especially working in the technology field or alongside them, I can see could be very beneficial for a lot of corporations who are international or, or working with government agencies. Absolutely, absolutely, and yeah. and marketing and advertising, for that matter. I, I don't I don't particularly like those labels being uh, applied to uh, to psyop as uh, at, well at just as that as labels, but clearly they're disciplines that we uh, utilize, and so that lends itself to folks uh, departing service and, and deciding to go work at some large ad agency if they like. One of the things that um, I, I think psyop really pushed me to finish my bachelor's and actually start my master's. Uh, something I don't think I, I thank you. Something I, I definitely would not have done, at least in this time while I was a scout, because one, a lot of people to your left and right were just not doing it. Um, yeah. The it kind of the you know I was in armor. Like the oh, yeah. culture is just it's just not something Very we different. do. Um, yeah. <laughs> how we've been so exposed, um, you're gonna be in a room with an ambassador and his staff and all these people have master's degrees. Um, you're gonna be talking to US eight you're going to be talking to United Nations. All these people have, at the very least, a master's degree. And uh, very soon, to your left, and also to your left and your right, are these captains who either have their bachelor's and they're, they're working on their uh, master's. And so it really pushes on you to start furthering your education. And one of the things Captain Mill uh, Milligan says is you're always studying. And it was kind of that thing with me always um, conducting analysis, always studying. I just started applying that to my personal life. And I'm like, if... If I'm going to spend all this time studying, um, you know, other people's culture and their environments, I think I can apply 10% of that time to my own college and and my own. And what ended up happening was that started opening my doors. And the sergeant major hit. You will be getting a lot of cards um, on my dresser. It's a lot from the State Department, from the RSOs who will tell you like, hey, like, let me know when you um, when you sign up, and I'll show you, show you the process or the State Department officials will tell you, like, they'll tell you all about the essays that you need to do in order to become foreign services and um, foreign service. And so it's it the culture changes your mindset. Um, and I think now I have a much better feeling of when I get out the army versus a scout getting out the army with no um, secondary education, except for you know high school. I have I actually have two close friends. One has his doctorate. And the other one is about done, so they wow. maintain that momentum. They, you know, education for them. They found it helped them in their job. They just kept kept going, and uh, they now have their doctorates, which was pretty impressive to me. Enlisted, it is. prior enlisted. Yeah, that 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 is uh, remarkable. And I think that you're right. Um, you know, there a lot of MOSs within the military, especially those within combat arms, do tend to kind of focus more on your troop time and the amount of time that you're having face with your troop. Um, so it's difficult. It's very challenging then to sneak away and try to get, you know, anything about above an associate's degree. If you start going for a bachelor's or master's, it could be frowned upon. So it's a very valid point uh, that you're making there. And there are MOSs out there, it sounds like this being one of them, that affords you the opportunity that even with the op tempo, they understand, and especially with today's technology, you, you have the capability now, if you want to apply yourself, to be able uh, to further your education. Uh, and it's and so important too. Yeah, and it's it's beyond uh, just this branch allowing the opportunities. Quite quite honestly, we need our soldiers to do uh, just that. 
So we yeah. look for soldiers who want to do it and then and then allow them the opportunity. So. It's changing that culture in a lot of the, the yeah. OSs, though. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Colonel Smith, Captain Milligan, Sergeant Smith, and Matt Galvin, Sergeant Major. I appreciate all of you guys coming on the uh, the Mentors Military podcast. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for uh, helping us uh, do that explaining and, and, and getting the word out. As Captain Milligan indicated, there's some, uh, like on the officer side, for instance, there's a very tight window uh, for them to be able to apply. So uh, we need the word out there. 